Hello! You're plugging in to the Evolution Sermon Podcast. We're so excited to share with you another awesome message from Pastor Charmaine. Have an awesome day. We'll see you at church. We just showed a video of the James Webb Telescope and for those of you listening on the Evolution's uh, channel, we can't put that on due to copyright so you can just go surf YouTube, uh, places like NASA, BBC you know, Wall Street Journal and go check some of those amazing videos out, all right? But so everyone can start to follow us today. Uh, James Webb is NASA's latest engineering marvel. It is the biggest, most expensive, most powerful telescope we have ever built to date. And since Christmas last year, it is now orbiting the sun at a point in space called Lorange 2, 1.5 million kilometers from Earth. Now, what makes Webb so incredible and why it's capturing the attention of everyone everywhere is that James Webb Telescope will allow NASA and us to see much further into the universe than ever before. And to see especially what up to now has been invisible to our human eyes. You see, before Webb, we had something called the Hubble Telescope. Anyone know that? Now, Hubble was also a pretty amazing telescope, okay? But it was designed to capture mostly ultraviolet light and light that is on what we call the visible spectrum for us. Now, Webb, on the other hand, it focuses on infrared light, fully on what is completely invisible to us. Scientists then take that data and they translate it as best they can into our visible spectrum, basically a visual language that we can understand and we get those beautiful pictures that you now see online. Okay, now what's the difference? What difference does it make, you might ask, Hubble to Webb? Well, just to give you a clear comparison right now, right, this is a picture of a star-forming region called NGC 332 in the Carina Nebula, 7,600 light years away. So this is what normally with our old telescopes we would have been able to see. Now, this is what Hubble has thus far allowed us to see. And this is what James Webb now allows us to see. Okay? Now, here are some side-by-sides, okay? Hubble on the left, James Webb on the right. And another one. Now, here is one crazy one that recently came out that you may not have seen, okay? And it's the picture of a phantom galaxy. Now, this is what Hubble saw. And this is what James Webb sees. Okay, and the best thing about this, right, guys, is scientists can actually combine what they learn from Hubble with what they now learn from Webb in order to get a fuller understanding of what deep space really is. You know, to answer questions like, what happened after the Big Bang? How are planets, stars, and galaxies born and evolve over time? Which planets have the potential for life, and how are planets with the potential for life even formed? Now, the other thing is, I'm sure you already know this in some way, if you've been to school, (laughs) that besides allowing us to see what is invisible, the James Webb is also now allowing us to see back in time. Because how you know here, right, light takes time to travel across the universe to reach us. 
So, for example, if you were to go outside right now and look at the sun, you would not actually be seeing what is actually happening with the sun right now in this moment of time. But actually, you will be seeing what happened to the sun eight minutes ago. Because it takes eight minutes for light from the sun to reach us. Now, when we use a telescope, for example, to look at the closest star outside of our solar system, that is called Proxima Centauri, we can only capture and see what was going on four years ago. Now, when Webb captures the images we just saw, it is actually showing us stars and galaxies as they were billions of years ago. So in that sense, telescopes have this amazing ability to let us time travel. Now, Hubble, listen, was able to take us 480 billion years after the Big Bang. But James Webb now allows us to get even closer and reach 200 million years after the Big Bang. So it is this looking into the past, how the universe evolved over time, that allows us to understand the origins of creation and what might actually become our future. It's crazy, isn't it, right? How awesome is science? And how awesome is it that we as human beings have this crazy ability to see deeper into the origins of life and in the universe? So this is the metaphor I want to build on today. I want to use for my message today, learning to see. Turn and say learning to see. You know, what I found as a Christian is that knowing God is always simultaneously a head and a heart endeavor. Right, with our minds, we read the Bible, we reason, we philosophize, we come up with ideas, deduction of who we think God is from our reading. So in that sense, you know, whatever we think of God today, whatever we know of God today, whatever we are seeing of God today in our lives, is always a version of Him that we perceived and interpreted yesterday. Whatever amazing discoveries you have learned about God in your life up to this point, there is always something greater to be learned and revealed. So, listen, just as it takes learning and building technologies in order to see and know deeper into the universe, we need to keep learning and growing and building capacities in order to know our God better. To see what is invisible to us, to understand mysteries that are still unknown, to perceive how God may have evolved and expanded over time, or rather His ways and the way He works in the world may have changed over time, and what that tells us about His truest, deepest self. At the same time, listen, we can't just understand God with our mind because knowing God includes our mind, but it also transcends our mind. So while there's an element of you and me, we pursue God, right? We pursue understanding. We pursue Him into the unknown. We delve into the Bible to dig Him up and try and figure Him out. There's a part of our spirituality that we cannot uncover for ourselves. God is always this supernatural being that also simultaneously reveals himself to our hearts. And that's why I think many of you can relate to this. If you've been a Christian for a while, it is possible to know who God is with our hearts, 
even before we can see him and understand him with our mind. So we're going to look at Paul today. 1 Corinthians 2, I've shelved Paul for a very long time. We're going to bring him out into the open again, right? Just to give us a jumping off point. Now, he says this in this very interesting passage. I'm going to read from the Message Bible, okay? 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and verse 9 to 13. It says here, Paul writes, God's wisdom is something mysterious that goes deep into the interior of his purposes. You don't find it lying around on the surface. It's not the latest message, but more like the oldest. What God determined as the way to bring out his best in us, long before we ever arrived on the scene. That's why we have this scripture text that says, no one's ever seen or heard anything like this. Never so much as imagined anything quite like it. What God has arranged for those who love him. But you, now here's the weird thing, he turns it again. You have seen and heard it. Because God, by his spirit, has brought it all out into the open before you. The spirit, not content to flit around on the surface, dives into the deep depths of God and brings out what God planned all along. Whoever knows what you're thinking and planning except yourself. The same is with God except that he not only knows what he's thinking but he lets us in on it. God offers a full report on the gifts of life and salvation that he is giving us. We don't have to rely on the world's guesses and opinions. We didn't learn this by reading books or going to school. We learned it from God who taught us person to person through Jesus and we're passing on to you in the same first-hand personal way. So, you know what? It's passages like this, right, that tell me Apostle Paul was not just a theologian. He was also kind of a poet, right? You see, here, God, you know, Paul describes God as a mystery, whom we cannot know by being superficial in our engagement with him. He, he describes God as someone we got to get personal with. We have to dive deep into intimately in order to know. And he says this too, but when we do, when we dive deep into God, there's a wisdom that's original, that is true to be discovered. Where God has a purpose for humanity that no one has ever seen or heard or imagined. Plans that are life and salvation that bring out the very best in us. But Paul adds, making this deep connection with God to have access to that person of Him and that wisdom and that plan of Him is something we have to learn how to do from the Holy Spirit. You see, it's interesting, right? Simultaneously, we're supposed to pursue God and learn. But then there's this thing where the Holy Spirit, she wants to teach us who God is. She wants to reveal Him. She wants us to connect with God and learn from her who He is. Now, listen, I have preached a million and one messages about knowing God more deeply. And I can tell you this is one of the hardest things to talk about. Because you can't talk about it systematically. Right? You know, whether I've described it as intimacy or hunger for His person and presence, you know, at the most basic level, any of these messages, you know, it really just comes out to that starting point. You got to have a heart for God. You know? Can't really define it. It's like you need a heart for God. 
right? That our posture towards God, how we pursue Him, and how we respond when He pursues us, our attitude towards God, it determines our ability to see Him. Jesus calls it in the Beatitudes, having a pure heart. That those with pure hearts, which I'm going to believe does not mean perfection. It means sincerity, humility, desire. You know, those with pure hearts towards God, those are the people who get to see God in their lives. So at the very least, if you want to know Jesus, start there. But today I want to go even more specific, is that all right? And talk about three ways the Holy Spirit grows our capacities to see God. Three metaphorical mirrors, because if you don't know this, there are two main important components to any telescope. The first is the mirror that captures the light. And the second, you'll see this in our traditional telescopes back down on earth, it's usually a tube, right? And that tube is there to cut out the light and cut out the dust in order for the lens to capture, the mirror to capture the light properly. James Webb has that, except they redesigned it in space to be a sun shield. Now, if you were wondering right, how big the James Webb telescope is, let me just give you some perspective, because you know Americans, they talk in feet. For all the rest of the world, we talk in meters. The James Webb lens itself is the size of this stage, six meters in diameter. The sun shield that shields it from the light and heat so it can capture images is the size of a tennis court. So probably roughly the size of this room. Wow, great, great dimensions here. Okay, so today I want to talk about three metaphorical mirrors, okay? That the Holy Spirit uses to teach us how to capture images of God. The first is love. You know, the reason any of us is sitting here today, have you thought about it, is because we first encountered God through love. God is love. And so, His starting point and end point for any of us is love. You know, for me, my starting point happened when I was 14 years old. I was an angry teenager who went to a church youth camp. And at that camp, I got touched by God. His presence came over me. First through, well, through different means, but first through a visiting prophet who was there at our camp, who picked me out of a crowd and said to me, God sees your heart and wants to heal it. You know, and that was the moment I found out that God wasn't a distant God. God wasn't a faraway God. God wasn't a God who didn't care or didn't exist, but that he was real and he saw me. And through the words that that person prayed over me, God started to dig up the deepest pains in my heart and told me that He loved me. And in that same encounter, God personally came to me and showed me all the ways I needed to be forgiven and all the forgiveness I needed to give to other people. And that encounter with love set me free. God's overwhelming love and belief in me that I had a better self and a better call set me on a trajectory to following Jesus. You see, for all of us here, love is the beginning point of our faith in God. Without that encounter with His love, nobody can even start to see God. 
much less start to give their life to coming to church and following Jesus. You know, maybe for you, it was an answer to your search for meaning. Maybe God saw a desire for purpose that you never said aloud to anyone around you. Maybe God saw insecurity and loneliness that you hid away even from your closest friends. You know, maybe your encounter with God came through Him meeting a desperate need you had in school, a struggle at work or at home. Right? You came to TiVo and at some point, Jesus spoke to some deep part of your soul, showed you that you were seen, filled you with love enough to make you stop and stay and recalibrate your life. To go, I'm going to give this Christianity thing a shot. I'm going to change the way I do Sundays in order to get to know this God that I don't know at all yet, but have somehow caught a glimpse of. Listen, guys, I grew up in church my whole life. Unlike most of you who are first-generation Christians, I grew up in church. But I never saw God until I experienced His love. And even today, I will tell you, I cannot see God when I'm living out of His love. I mean, none of you here needs a Bible verse, right, to prove to you and say to you and state to you how powerful love as a force really is. I mean, from the time we are born, every human being understands the power of love. You know, from the time we are born to every relationship we have, you know, from our beginning to our end and all that's in between, love makes us, motivates us, challenges us, brings us together, binds us together. Love can also make us afraid, make us run, especially when it's too intense or unexpected. But then we also recognize the lack of love, it hollows us out and sometimes even breaks us. You know, love is the greatest of forces because love isn't just something God does. It is who He is. Wherever in the earth there is love, even if it doesn't come under the label Jesus, there is the essence and power of God present. You see, that's the thing I think sometimes as a Christian, we miss about Paul. You know, sometimes I get so angry with Paul. Why do you say this? And why do you say it this way? Now you have to make me re-explain you to the rest of the world so that, you know, <laughs> Paul, right? Yeah. And I get so caught up in trying to explain what he's trying to say, but I forget when Paul writes, he writes out of a deeper encounter with love. Yeah. A love that causes him to gush with and write with complicated sentences about who Jesus is. How Jesus loved him and how now he is in love with God. He wants everyone to fall in love with God the way he has. But in case you need a verse for me to prove my points, he does have one in Ephesians, right? Where he writes, This is why I kneel before the Father. I ask that Christ will live in your hearts through faith, and as a result of having strong roots in love, I ask that you will have the power to grasp love's width and length, height and depth together with all the believers. 
I ask that you will know the love of Christ that is beyond knowledge so that you may be filled entirely with the fullness of God. I think that's a poet writing. Not a systematic theologian. Well, not in this moment. Because love is the way we know God intimately, fully. Way beyond what any words or head knowledge or message can give us. So let me tell you, if you're a new Christian, I hope that you have many, many encounters with God's love because love is your starting point to seeing God. And if you are old, uh, Christian, I hope you always know that no one is ever too old for love. No one is ever too old to know love, to experience it, to fall into it, fall back into it with God over and over again. Because listen, not only is love the beginning of our faith, love also keeps us in faith. You know, the Bible tells us, right, there there was one day, Jesus, you know, he was out preaching and there was a day when all the people, the crowd started bringing people to him, hoping that he would lay hands on them and bless them. But as the children came, the Bible tells us the disciples started to shoo all the kids away, right? And this made, the Bible says, Jesus pissed. And this is when he gave one of the most profound teachings and demonstrations about the kingdom of God that we have in our Bible. Mark 10, 14 says, Jesus said, don't push these children away. Don't ever get between them and me. These children, now here's the provide, are the very center of life in the kingdom. Mark this, he says to his reckless disciples, (laughs) unless you accept God's kingdom with the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. Then, gathering the children up in his arms, he laid hands of blessing on them. Now listen, this image is just really powerful. Because you must think about it in context, how contrary it must have been to the disciples' existing picture and experience of religion. I mean, religion back then was hierarchical. It was about, you know, consolidating authority, exercising power, exclusivity. Not unlike today. Some things don't change. The disciples are followers of Jesus. But yet, they are really just duplicating what they have known about religion all their life. Hey, 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 get back. We're closer to Jesus. Hello. We're the 12. You know who the 12 are? This is Jesus. Know your place. Even to the kids. That was the extent of how they saw Jesus. And what Jesus does is he takes that image and he turns it all on its head. He gets angry. And he says... These kids are at the very center of life in God's kingdom. You need to have the simplicity of a child. Unless you can come to God the way these children come to me, wanting to be swept up in my arms and held in my arms, you will never get in. You see, none of us can see God unless we come with this simplicity in our love. You know, the more Chim translations of this passage call it childlike faith. But what is childlike faith, really? It's this picture. It's what Paul already told us in Ephesians. It's love. It is coming to be loved by God. To be swept up 
in Jesus' arms. Now, let me say a little bit further, okay? Now, when we first start out, we all start by seeing God through love, right? Through a healing, through a miracle, through some blessings, through some breakthroughs, through some dreams, an answered prayer for grades, an answered prayer for success, and that is perfectly fine. That's how Jesus first encountered all the crowds. But remember, those things are not all that love is. Because if we as Christians keep coming to God only for those things, love very quickly turns into lust. Because love isn't a miracle. Love is why God sends you the miracle to begin with. That's why the purest expression of faith in the Bible, the purest picture of faith in the Bible is never the healings and the signs and the wonders and the miracles. It's Jesus sweeping a child up in his arms. It's Jesus crying when he sees an old widow weeping over her lost son and resurrects him. It is Jesus, you know, looking at Zacchaeus in the tree, and when the whole world rejects him, says, Zacchaeus, I know you by name, and I want to come and spend time with you in your house. It's the love that God feels about you and me. And I hope you never forget that, no matter how grown up you think you get or are. Because if you lose love, you lose your ability to see God. Now, the second mirror the Holy Spirit uses us to help capture and see God, well, you're not going to like this one. Number two, it's suffering. (laughs) So I just said to you right earlier, I didn't ever see God until I experienced love. Well, I also didn't ever really see God until I experienced suffering. Theologian Paula D'Arcy puts it like this. She puts it best, I think. Very simply, she says, God comes to you disguised as your life. (laughs) You see, guys, love without suffering tends to make us into brats. If we have never ever suffered deeply or allowed ourselves to suffer deeply, we're just unable to understand spiritual things with any kind of depth whatsoever. Right? We become those Christians that are very good at quoting verses, but rubbish at experiencing God himself. Much less demonstrating to the world who God truly is. You know, sometimes the most telling picture of this is Christians you meet at funerals. You know, the Christians that go, I must take this opportunity that God has given me to evangelize and make disciples. Jesus said, I must make disciples so I must preach the gospel when someone's family member because it dies because it's a vulnerable point, they are open. I must use this chance to urge them, no manipulate them, to come back to church. You know, they preach, Jesus loves you. He loves all sinners. But if you don't come to church, you are going to hell. Where are you going when you die? (laughs) You see, when we don't ever suffer for ourselves or lean into suffering and grief 
and experience pain and vulnerability. You know, because it's possible to go through suffering, right, and just be toxically positive. I'm fine, everything is good. It will turn for, you know, it's awesome. It's all in Jesus' name, I claim, blah, 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 blah. Right? You see, when we don't suffer, when we don't let suffering in, lament and grief into our lives, we lack compassion. We lack any depth to our supposed understanding of God. You see, suffering has this nature to make us see deeper than what is superficial in our lives. So let me give you two examples for me. Is that okay? The first, less consequential. Second, more consequential, all right? So the first is with regards to me learning to trust God with my finances. Now, I grew up in church knowing from a young age that I must give my offerings. From the time I think I was yay high and could walk and maybe talk a little bit more than Zach. Every Sunday, my mom would give me a $1 coin or a $2 note to put in the offering bag. Give your offerings to Jesus. Yeah, right? Okay. And so I grew up knowing how to give offerings. And I grew up also having around the atmosphere that we give offerings, you know, actually a very Chinese idea, right? We give offerings so that God will bless us and protect us. I grew up knowing very early on as I got older that one of the names of God in the Bible was Jehovah Jireh, which means God will provide. And when I got a bit older, I started to learn the rationale and theology behind tithing. Now, my version was a little bit more prosperity gospel than how I would now teach it. But basically, the idea was if I put God first in my giving, my first 10%, the windows of heaven will open and nothing will rob me of my wealth. Thank you, Ashley, for that verse. So I don't have to redo it right now. Now, listen, I knew all that for many years of my life, however imperfect it was, right? But never once in all that time did I ever experience a financial miracle or feel the need ever to pray and ask God to provide for me, bless me with more. Because on my own, I had enough. If I needed more, I'll go and work and make it in order to buy what I want. I was a pretty good saver as a youth. But it was only when I was 19, just as I was about to resign from my first job at church and attempt to do ministry with no income for one year, you know, as I was about to enter that season, God said, empty your bank account. <sighs> now listen, that might have been one of the hardest things up to that point God had ever asked of me. And still today, I would say one of the hardest offerings I've ever had to give. You know, because I was always a person who had enough on my own, enough in reserve. And let me tell you, I gave that $6,000 and it would not be the last time God asked me to empty my bank account wallet for the next one year. For the next one year, God will ask me to do it multiple times. And I tell you, I really understood then what was the meaning to suffer financially. You know, some days I would go to church and not know if I would have the bus fare to get back home. Some days, I went out of the house knowing I might not have enough money to eat and would have to be hungry until I got home that night. You know, but that was also the year I experienced the most miracles. Because that was the year I finally understood, you know what Jesus meant when he told his disciples, you can take nothing with you when you go out to ministry, but God will provide. I give an example, right? One day I was at church and God said to me at the end of gathering, because that church used to collect offering right at the end of gathering, 
you know, God said to me as I saw the offering bag coming towards me, empty your wallet. I must have had less than 10 bucks, but God said, trust me. I emptied even the one cents out. And I, as I did that, I thought about how was I going to get home? How was I going to turn to Sue who was next to me and ask if she could drop me home that day because I had zero money to get from Commonwealth to Thompson. The pastor said the final prayer, bless the offering. And the next moment, Sue turns to me, whips out an envelope from her bag and said, this morning God asked me to give you $200. <laughs> That's right, Zach. <laughs> Suffering was the way I learned that you obey God and put Him first. There will be enough. It was how I learned that it is possible to plant and finance the evolution from nothing. Now, the second example I have for you is something deeper. And some of you already know this story from ministry training. It has to do with Sunshin. You see, one of my favorite verses as a youth and eventually as a leader you know, my favorite verse was always John 12, 24. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a harvest, a plentiful harvest of new lives. You know, people, right, have their favorite inspiring IG quotes that they use as their mantra. This was mine. You know, yes, God, if we laid our lives for your kingdom, we will end up blessing many lives. Yes, God, this is my philosophy of leadership. I must lay down my life like Jesus did radically and invest in people and we will grow. But then, one week after we dedicated our church for the first time, Zhen Chen was in an accident. And two weeks after our dedication, he passed away. And for the next one, two years, the church, well, one and a half probably, the church was in grief. It was one of the harder seasons of my life as a pastor, as a leader, not because my people were difficult. No, you guys were great. But I was so discouraged. You know, I was full of questions. You know, is God really with us? How could this happen one week, two weeks after we started our church? Right? But then, suddenly out of the blue, in the midst of all that suffering, we started to grow. And sure, we worked hard. Yes, we gave a lot of time and energy. We were a dedicated bunch. But even now, I look back, and I'm not sure that's all there was to the whole thing. Because this verse started to mean something completely different to me. Suddenly, I just understood how God uses death to produce life. I looked at the people we were raising up in our church, the students with a great heart, with a love for worship, and I just knew something about Zhen Xuan's death gave birth to a harvest of life. You know, I suddenly understood why and how powerful it was that Jesus had to give his life on the cross, and that is why today Christianity is just one of the, the most enduring religions on this earth. You see, even with all my seminary training, all the theories and frameworks in my head about Jesus' death on the cross. You know, was it atonement theory? Was it substitution theory? Was it the great exchange? I can't tell you which theory is most true about the cross. But I can tell you in my bones that death is necessary for life. And as hard as it is, as painful as it can be sometimes, whether it's real death or metaphorical death, the cross is necessary for us to bring in a better future. 
You see, while love is our childlike faith in God, suffering is our spiritual maturity. I think Buddha was on to something. When he came up with a philosophy that engaging with and letting suffering pass through us is a path to enlightenment. You see, modern prosperity gospel, modern Christianity, we tend to forget about that side of our faith. Right? We become just all about the faith and all about the blessings and we don't want to talk about sufferings. We'll talk about it a little bit when we feel a little bit victim. But then the end of it is always, but we will be victorious. But here's the thing, right? Whether it's love or it's suffering, if we have never loved deeply or suffered deeply, we are just unable to understand spiritual things with any kind of substance. You see, any healthy or true religion, belief system or spirituality, it is there to teach us how to handle love and how to handle suffering. Through suffering, we get to experience the expansiveness and the depth of God's love for us. Through suffering, we understand who God really is and what really matters to Him. So let me tell you something interesting, right? That I, I read recently in Richard Rowe's recent, most recent book, right? Universal Christ, that really struck me. It's just this one little thing he says. He says, he finds the prosperity gospel is most commonly found and embraced among Christians who avoid great love and avoid great suffering. You see, if you only experience God's love as superficial blessings, favor, and success, you will never know God deeply. If the goal of your life when you come to church is to ask God to help you avoid difficulty and pain, you will never see God's wisdom deeply. Accepting suffering, learning to struggle with it, wrestle with it, and respond to God through the process, it matures us. So please listen, if you want to know God more deeply, don't let your prayers go only as far as, God, help me make a sale. Help me get a promotion. Give me this and give me that. Protect me from this and protect me from that. Maybe the head and not the tail. That sort of surface relationship with God will never bring you into true life and salvation. It will never connect you to God's Spirit in a way that she draws out the best in you. Suffering. One last one. Ready? This one is worse than number two. I gave it very sacred language today. Number three, death to self. Ooh. We don't see God until we choose to die to self. Again, not talking about your identity here. Not talking about who God designed you to be, the best of you. I'm talking about our ego. Death to self is the act of freely, willingly giving ourselves to God and His purposes for us. Jesus described it this way, Matthew 10, 39. Those who find their lives will lose them. But those who lose their life because of me will find them. John said it this way. John said, he must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. Paul 
went, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in my body, I live by faith, indeed by the faithfulness of God's Son who loved me and gave himself for me. I mean, have you noticed, right? Human beings have this habit, we're always running away and trying to avoid death. Right? I mean, have you ever, if you just go and Google, right, pictures of, of death across cultures, right, and religions, right, it's usually always this ominous, like, being, wow, that we've got to run from, man. Right? I mean, human beings, even if you don't believe in all those mythologies, and listen, human beings, right, we spend our whole lives trying to avoid death. I mean, we're trying to come up with ways to cryo-freeze ourselves so we can live forever. Right? We, we buy creams, facials, Anything we can do to stall death and aging, delay it. You know, and we're the same way when it comes to protecting our ego. You know, even the best of us, we, we, those of us, we, wow, we genuinely, desperately, enthusiastically want to be like Jesus. We all have moments where we hate sacrificing, where we hate having to change. We hate having to humble ourselves. Right, to give up what we know, what we've become secure in, confident in, you know, heck, even the comfort of what we know up to know about God up to this point. Except the issue is death to self is one of the most important ways the Holy Spirit brings us deeper into knowing Jesus. It's why Jesus kept going towards the cross, even when there were moments recorded in the Bible he didn't want to. You know, all the great heroes of the Bible, you know, even not in the Bible, heroes that we know in this world today, right? However imperfect they were, however imperfect they were with building the future, they kept on dying to themselves so they could have a deeper revelation of God, they could see a bigger, better future. You see, very often the biggest obstacle to seeing God is ourselves. Now, let me name you a few ways, okay, and I've done it quite cleverly today, right? That, and a few ways where I've gotten in my own way, okay? The first is by saying to myself, I know. In other words, holding on to my pride. You know, the problem with pride isn't just that when you meet proud people, they are arrogant and overbearing and, 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 grandiose, are you hear me? I'm overconfident. I mean, we all know boastful people, right? Irritating, right? But the most problematic thing about pride is not that, it's that it keeps us from receiving love. You know, I know I don't need your help. I don't need you. I don't need you, God. Right? And when we say I know, we cut ourselves off from the love that God wants us to experience from being swept up, from being helped. We cut ourselves, you know, even with each other, pride cuts us off from experiencing love from our friends. You know, I have noticed this, right, with most of us, right, all of us, right? Our friends always want to give us love. Very often the problem is not that we don't have friends that don't want to love us, it's that we cannot lower our pride to be vulnerable enough to receive the love. Pride stops us from love. Now, the second way I've gone on in my own way with God is I already know. 
I'm comfortable. I'm secure. Right? I already, I, I'm comfortable in what I already have. God has blessed me with this. I'm comfortable. God has shown me this. I'm comfortable. Right? Hubble is enough. Why do we need to build web? And you know now they're actually starting to build another telescope called the Magellan, which is going to cost $20 billion. Okay? Right? What I have experienced is enough. Why go further? Right? I'm secure in my career, my life. I'm secure in ministry. Why mess with a gospel that has already gotten me so far? You know, there's a reason why people like sticking to old theology. Just said people just love their old wineskins. They don't want to give it up. People love their old revelations of God, right? We like the God who provides and protects. Don't talk to me about a God who evangelizes. Don't, don't, don't talk to me about God who, who wants equity and justice. Who... And then we stop ourselves from more. Third one, I don't want to know. Right? These are the moments where I've been fearful, stubborn, often immature. Now, there are many reasons why we hit this point in our relationship with God where we don't want to know. Because I think deep down inside sometimes, right, actually we already know. But we want to avoid bringing it out into the open because we might have to obey. We might have to grow up. Right? Growing up in obedience is always work. It's always a kind of suffering. Right, so I'll be honest, there have been a few times in my life where I didn't want to pray because I knew if I prayed, I would hear from God. And hearing from God would mean I needed to answer a calling that was difficult. Hearing from Him would mean that I have to be courageous in something that I was feeling afraid about. Hearing from Him meant that I would need to change in order to be worthy of something that He was asking me to do. Last one, I don't need to know. And for me, this is what I define as when Christians become apathetic and indifferent. To the, not just we're avoiding our own suffering, now we want to be indifferent to the suffering and pain of the world around us. You see, here's the thing with death to self, right? Death to self is never just choosing death so me, I can experience God, me alone, my individual self. Experiencing God always means He will call us to be a part of some greater plan and purpose, not just for our individual selves, but for our collective world. You see, the passage we just read in Corinthians, if you read it in context, right, Paul isn't just talking about your own individual needs, your own individual future, your own hope and all that kind of stuff. He's actually talking about humanity, Jews and Gentiles, community. You see, that's the thing about God. You know, it's, it's hard to read Paul because everything is just intertwined together. We're supposed to pursue God, what God is pursuing us. We become one with Jesus, but as we become one with Jesus, we, we get to know ourselves better. We know ourselves better, but we become one with the world. That's why Christianity can be so baffling, right? You see... Remember here, there are always two big components to any great telescope, right? The mirror that helps us capture the deep mysteries of space. But then there's the tube on West case, the sunshade, like I said to you, that blocks out heat and light that interferes with what we can see. 
And all these egoic things I just mentioned, they interfere with our ability to see God and be more intimate with Him. And the remedy is death to self so that we can see. So let's return to our hero Paul, shall we? Wow, it's taken me years to come to this point where I say, our hero Paul. I've been so angry with him for so long. <laughs> Apostle Paul is the author of the majority of the New Testament. Very hard to avoid him. So minus the Gospels, he wrote most of the second half of the Bible. Simply because he has the deepest insights into God. Now, very interesting, right? He wasn't one of the original 12 who literally walked with Jesus side by side and spent three years with him. But this guy was still able to see arguably the deepest into the mystery that is God and this gospel that we preach. He had this incredible depth of intimacy that he managed to put into writing, albeit very complicatedly, and now has defined so much of Christianity forever. But the interesting thing about this guy is, you know, when we first meet him as a character in the Bible, he had a really hard time seeing God. He persecuted Christians, imprisoned them, killed them. The whole early church was afraid of this one guy. Until one day, Jesus decided to divinely intervene and on the way, on the road to somewhere to arrest some Christians, the bright white light shone from heaven, struck. Paul blind, he fell off his horse in fear and trembling. And then God spoke to him, you know, Paul, Paul, why is it Saul, Saul, Saul? He was, hasn't Paul yet. Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right, and Paul in his state of blindness goes, who are you? <laughs> right, who are you? And God replies, I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. So Christians, we call this Paul's great conversion, Right? As though he went from never knowing God at all to now knowing Him. Now, sometimes I wonder why we, we, we say conversion. Maybe it's because we're trying to distinguish, right? I don't know, Christians, we try to distinguish, oh, we're better than the Jews. <laughs> Judaism is good, but Christianity. But the thing is, if you read Paul's writing, he never talks about, well, he uses the word conversion, but he never talks about it like a conversion. Like a complete switch from one thing to another thing but more like a continuation. Right? Paul, when he would write to his churches, he would constantly talk about how he was a Pharisee and a scholar trained for many years. He was zealous about God and loved God. But then through the Holy Spirit, he saw all his theology afresh and knew he saw God in a different way. He suddenly realized that Jesus is not a heretic, Jesus is Lord. So, you know, right after that bright white light experience, the way the Bible writes about Paul is very interesting. It says he was struck blind for three days. And after three days, what was like scales fell from his eyes and he was able to see again. Now, three in our Bible, in our faith, is always symbolic of renewal. In Paul's case, he left behind all that he thought he once knew of God up to that point which was, he was doing the work of God, persecuting Christians, and he began to see, what am I doing? Who is this God that I'm claiming to know when I'm killing people in His name? There's so much more I still need to see after six years of seminary training, 
being the studying under the greatest scholar of scholars among the Pharisees, being a great scholar himself. You know, he was like the next generation best Jew. Right? And he went, suddenly he went, oh my God, I've still got so much more to learn and see about who God is. So here's what I found every time I grow, right? Every time God reveals something new to me, two things happen. One, I see God in a deeper way. I realize that there's something good in what I learned before and there's something bad and there's something new, right? But the other thing that always automatically happens and I know it's God is because the way God causes me to see Him causes me to change my relationship with other people around me. So listen, seeing God always embeds us deeper into God but also deeper with other people. Now, I'm not just talking about TiVo here, right? TiVo is our local community. There's a wonderful place for local community. The Bible calls it the local church. But then there's this greater community that God calls us to call humanity, called creation, called the collective universe and the world, right? And so let me tell you, in all of Paul's writings, he never talks about knowing God being just for our individualistic selves. He always talks about diving deep into the wisdom of plan and God of God that is for everyone. So listen, when we say God has a plan and a future and a hope for our life, it is not for our individual life to get successful, to get rich, to get blessed, to be the head and not the tail. God's plan always has some larger purpose of a greater humanity. The gospel is not about the individual. The gospel is about the collective. The more we know God deeply, the more we become interconnected with Him and with others. You see, you can't die to yourself for yourself. You can only die to self for someone else. God is attracted when we're willing to die to ourselves to know Him and to love other people better. See, that is the way of the cross. That is the way of Jesus. That is the radical thing about Jesus that is the way to life. Right? You see, this is Jesus. He wants to build us into a world of people who are good at giving, who are good at letting go, who can lose, who can choose love over hate, forgiveness over revenge, peace over competition. That is the most baffling and radical wisdom of Jesus that Paul says the world doesn't get it. All the self-help gurus don't get it. All the latest messages and religions and ideas and concepts don't get it. The most baffling and radical wisdom of God is that He made Himself a criminal to die on the cross so that others could have better. And in doing so, He showed us who God is. Amen? Love, suffering, death to self. 